Welcome to the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast, the show that brings you lively conversations with leaders, colleagues, and friends in healthcare, pharmacy, and beyond. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast. I'm Melissa Muir Corrigan, and I'll be your host. This is episode 34 of the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast, and thanks for listening. While we're recording this episode during graduation time for student pharmacists and other healthcare heroes, we celebrate all that the class of 2021 has accomplished this year, who stepped up, faced adversity, and demonstrated their resilience. Congratulations and best of luck on your new chapter. So now let's talk about a leader. Mary Alice Bennett is a professor emerita of pharmacy practice and science and former residency director for the ambulatory and community care residency program at the Ohio State University College of Pharmacy. Mary Alice and I are gonna be discussing many things, including her pioneering vision for advancing patient care in community-based settings and mentoring. I'll give you a bit of an introduction to Mary Alice and then also let her tell you about herself, her career, and her many varied experiences in life in general. Professor Bennett is recognized as a practice innovator and agent of change. Mary Ellis has trained 108 pharmacy residents, wow, and numerous student pharmacists, a source of immense pride for her. She's a past president of the American Pharmacists Association, APHA, served as 2007 to 2009 president of APHA APPM, and a member of the APHA Board of Trustees. She also is the recipient of the 2021 Remington Honor Medal, the highest honor in pharmacy. We definitely will catch up on that one. Well, Mary Alice, thanks so much for being here with me today. As we get started, maybe you can talk a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and that special magic of Ohio pharmacy. Well, first, Melissa, just thank you for this opportunity to be here. And as I think about, uh, even as a little girl, what it looked like in my life and what it looks like today for little girls is just absolutely amazing. Uh, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. My parents built a house that was actually outside the city limits of Columbus uh, when they were married. And they were actually were married in the living room of that house in front of the fireplace. Oh, wow. That's cool. It is. It was, you know, you always think of that. There's only been one other owner of that house. And and so we go back and visit every once in a while just because it has so many, so many memories there. And so it's now way within the city limits, but then it was, then it was outside the city limits. My mother made all my clothes. I had Shirley Temple curls until I was like 13 years old. And uh, you might say that I rebelled a bit. I got on a bus and went downtown to the Lazarus store and got my curls all cut off. Um, I joined the softball team at the local city park. And I also ran track and, and, and uh, competed in the running broad jumps. So uh, I kind of turned into a tomboy in my high school days. And I have to share that uh, when my hair grew back in the Shirley Temple curls, I think the roots were so bent that the Shirley Temple curls uh, actually came back on their own, <laughs> much, much to my dismay. Um, I was really fortunate that I lived in Columbus, Ohio. You know, I felt like we were rich when I was growing up, but we really didn't have all that much money. And a college education was a pretty big reach for us. So living in Columbus, where Ohio State was, was, was such a blessing. And for it to not only be a university that I could 
get into and and uh, get to. It was such a, a magnificent place uh, to live and grow and really become a, a Buckeye for life when you become part of the Buckeye uh, community. I received a $300 general scholarship, which uh, helped me with my tuition because tuition then was less than $100 a quarter. I lived at home and I rode a bus to school. I worked at the, the local heart store where later on I became a, a pharmacy intern once I realized that that was even a, something that I could do started college thinking I would be a a math teacher because then, you know, you were going to be a teacher, you were going to be a nurse, you were going to be a secretary. Back in the late 50s, early 60s, there weren't that many dreams that little girls dreamed, I think. So I I soon learned that I really enjoyed chemistry uh, much more than I did math. And I learned about pharmacy from uh, students that were in my chemistry lab and really got intrigued and explored it. And uh, by the end of my freshman year, I did switch my major to pharmacy school. Um, I met Frank Bobe, who was what was called the secretary of the college at at that time, and he became my advisor. And, you know, it's one of those, again, those magical things that happened. He connected me with Cliff Lachalet at the medical center. Uh, where I started my internship in the pharmacy department. And that was certainly, I think, a life-altering experience. I think it was the first time I really experienced the diversity of the world uh, was when I worked at the medical center. And then it was just such an innovative time in in clinical pharmacy. And and Cliff Lachalet and, and OSU were really on the cutting edge of things that were happening. Pharmacy residence projects at that time, and residents were less than 10 years old. Uh, yeah, at that early, point. early days. Yeah, early, early days. But, you know, and I always told residents when, it, when we were choosing residency projects, I remember their projects being creating IV admixture services. I mean, I actually worked as an intern in the first IV admixture room at OSU. Another one was implementing unit dose and uh, and getting that, that moved up to the floors. We actually had technicians uh, eventually who administered meds. So that was another project of a resident. Establishing a drug information center, liaison pharmacists to the floors, and eventually clinical pharmacists to the floors. So those were residents' projects. And we just accept those as, as the norm of practice in, in hospitals hospitals today. Um, it, it was just such a positive, innovative environment. Also, it, just such a striving for excellence in taking care of patients. And that just built such a framework for me to be in that environment in, in, in those formative years of what I thought pharmacy was. And I indeed thought Cliff was the Wizard of Oz, doing magic behind a curtain someplace uh, to create this uh, amazing new landscape of pharmacy. And so I never lost that lust for change and that lust for innovation and that and that lust for excellency in, in, in whatever you did because of, of those early years I had in the pharmacy department at OSU. And I eventually had that opportunity to be one of those first clinical pharmacists that worked on the floors at OSU and was the first clinical pharmacist around on the renal services there. So those were just, just really exciting years. And really the foundation that carried over into many of the things that I did later on. And once I began to have children, I, I leaned out for just a really short while. And then I returned to OSU part-time thinking that, you know, I'd be filling unidose carts in the unidose area. And it just happened to be the time when the college was uh, 
developed this new division of pharmacy practice. And so I was given the opportunity to uh, teach part-time and create some practice opportunities in the ambulatory care clinics, which was not only my portal into the more AmCare community-based practice, but also that portal of entry into academia. But I'll have to say it wasn't until 1992, when after my second child, we had three boys, second child entered college that I moved into a full-time regular faculty position. And it was on this new clinical track that the college was just starting. Um, so again, I was innovative just in, in the in the track yeah. that, I, that I was in as well. So every, it seemed like every time a door opened, it was something new. And, and then I just happened to be positioned at the right place at the right time. And at that time for my clinical practice, I chose to look at patient care services in the community setting. And the college owned the pharmacy at that time that was in the OSU clinic, outpatient clinic building, uh, we were using as a teaching laboratory. And we, and we began to develop services there. And with the help of an APHA foundation project called Project Impact Hyperlipidemia, um, it really gave us a jump start into creating a framework for building future services at that site and, and really for creating future practices in other areas. So out of that opportunity, two new practices evolved. One was the Clinical Partners Program, which was the patient care services arm of that clinic pharmacy. And then ultimately, University Health Connection evolved out of a partnership with a physician that ran uh, urgent care out of that clinic. And we developed University Health Connection as a interprofessional clinic for faculty and staff at the university. And just in tandem with all that growth, um, came the opportunity for residency training. And so the community and ambulatory care residency programs began to evolve uh, side by side with those practices. And really the residents were key in, in helping to, to create the services that advanced those practices as well. So it, it was an exciting, exciting time, I would say, to grow up in pharmacy, which seemed to be my path just always took me where something new was happening and I would have the opportunity to try something new. So I always I always encourage people to be entrepreneurial and think outside the box because uh, the opportunities are just amazing and the networking and the opportunities that you get to meet for people inside and outside of pharmacy are just uh, unparalleled, I think, as you kind of step outside your box and, and begin to explore. Yeah, I love that about think outside your box. And, you know, you really described that well, because when you were starting out in college um, and talking about your college journey and the scholarships and how the pieces lined up, but also I think it's interesting that at that time there weren't as many options for women and, you know, or there was a path that most women went into um, if they were attending college at that time. So, you know, I think that's a good advice even today that even though you might think there's a set path or what you need to do or what you should do. If you're open, the experiences can just be amazing. And, you know, I also want to echo what you shared about, you know, the Ohio State and the legacy within pharmacy and just as a Big Ten university. So I, I just enjoyed hearing about your experiences. And then also, I think a key point was as a resident, the impact and change that you can have with trying these programs, whether it be unit dose or clinical pharmacy or we know residents have been involved in tech check tech across the country. And so that was really cool. You know, you shared about being a mother and having the three boys. So tell me a little bit more about your family, you know, your, your marriage to John and you're recording this today, visiting your, your grandchildren. So how have they influenced you? 
first I'll say that John and I will be married for 52 years this June. Wow. Woohoo. Yes. And, and, and I think back when you thought about people who were married for 50 years, how ancient they were. And I, <laughs> I, I still do believe I'm 25. I, there's always hope, I guess. I think when I started practicing pharmacy, you didn't see many women with careers, let alone women in pharmacy. Um, and so this journey of integrating family and career was really an arc, unmarked road for both John and I to travel. So there was a uh, you know, this piece of, I think for a man in that area of your wife working was was not necessarily a positive. Uh, and so he had to adjust to this woman who, you know, had this passion about her career. And I also had, I just really enjoyed being a mom. And so I, I didn't want to lose that. So I, I always felt like I was in this, you know, this toss up of which direction to go and sometimes felt like in fact, I think I kind of settled in that I was actually in a lose-lose. You know, I was in the area of I was, when feminism was blossoming. So I felt like if I stayed at home, I was, you know, I was this terrible woman because I had this education and I wasn't using it. And a man could have had my slot in that career. But that if I went went to work, I felt like, I, you know, everybody looked at me as being a terrible mom. And so I eventually thought, well, you know, somebody's going to be unhappy with you either way you look. So just go do what works for you. And, and, and that's what we had to do. We had to find that balance together on, on how that was going to work for us. And it, it and that changed from the time a, a baby was born until the time kids went off to college. So, so you're constantly reassessing uh, that balance. And I think we, we learned to do that well together. I've always said, though, being a mom is my favorite job and being a grandma is definitely a close second. And I have learned so much by having children, certainly being an educator. I looked at students very differently, having children of my own, especially when they moved into the college themselves. I always say when a student stood at my door, I would think if that was my child, what would I want that faculty member to do? And definitely would be to have them come in and sit down and talk to them. So, you know, it, it, I think it really drove me to that, you know, wanting to help students and be there for students. But my children are definitely out of the box. They kind of taught me how to get out of the box. Uh, they've traveled extensively. They've definitely widened my lens to the world, um, to people, to just, I can see the world through their eyes and have encouraged me to travel and, and, and learn as they have done. Learn much more about people, diminished a lot of fears, uh, changed a lot of thought processes, Gain a lot of new philosophies. Um, so I feel like they've been my teacher about the world and about people and, and about how really to live and to enjoy life. And so that has really made me, I think, a better teacher and a better caregiver, a better practitioner, uh, definitely makes you interact differently with patients and people, really thinking of them as people and not patients in, in many ways. And then they've also taught me just to enjoy life. They can find fun in just about anything they do. And there's just lots of laughter when they're all together. And so I, I enjoy that. They're my entertainment is just being around them all. So I, I have found that journey we had in, in learning how to go into the unmarked territory of balancing career and family life continues even as we are in retirement, looking for that different ways to balance all those things, um, but that how important all those are in our lives and how they impact everything we do. Well, I so appreciate, you know, your reflections on your family and congrats on the 50 plus years of marriage. Um, my parents also are in that category. And when I talked with Lynette Bradley Baker, her parents were similar. And I think it's so outstanding to have role models of love like that. And, you know, to kind of see the journey, um, the good times and the challenging times and 
you know, I was just so thrilled that you and I were going to be able to talk today and want to say thank you for the influence that you've had on me and so many others, um, clearly for your work in change and innovation in pharmacy, but really more in life and, you know, about how you've navigated certain things and just observing you and the lessons that we've learned from you. And I was so tickled, so pleased that during your Remington lecture, there was a surprise at the very end that your beautiful granddaughter, Josie, you know, gave remarks about, you know, we had spent time talking about your outstanding accomplishments and you had just given this amazing lecture, you know, that we'll reflect on. And I think we can take pieces away for pharmacy today and then pharmacy in the future. But she really talked about you, you know, as a, a mom and a grandma and as a woman and how you've just holistically helped so many of us. So, you know, I just want to make sure that that you know that there's many of us that are, you know, just so happy for you for that recognition, but also just we're better people because of having known you and worked with you. So thank you. Well, I really appreciate that. And I have to I have to share with you that I I've heard more than once from the family about her about Josie's comment about sometimes my grandma breaks the rules. Um, that's been reflected back to me multiple times. <laughs> it's maybe not a not a plus as a role model for my grandchildren. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's it's always interesting what they see and observe. And then I have nieces and they pipe back to you. You're like, hmm, when did you hear that? So, well, you know, as we're talking today, you've remarked a little bit about people, especially in your Ohio pharmacy family that have influenced you. So let's dig a little deeper on that about, you know, who some of these key influencers were pre and post pharmacy school, and did they impact your focus on community pharmacy? And how did that come about? So I, I would say one key influencer that I like to reflect on is someone whose name I don't know and whose face I can't remember. Uh, it was a counselor during orientation to Ohio State that spent maybe 20, 30 minutes with me deciding what my courses were going to be in my freshman year and what track I was going to take. And that counselor uh, made the decision to put me in chemistry, math, line me up to be in physics uh, and biology. And this is in 1964 when women were not in, you know, yeah. In those classes. Now, I have to share the rest of the story uh, in that my entrance exams, uh, I was scored extremely high in the sciences. But the rest of the story is I was did not have impressive scores in the area of English skills and reading comprehension. So I can't even tell if this person was a woman or a man, to be honest with you. But they must have realized my only hope was going to be in the sciences. So they took a risk and, and put me there. I feel like that counselor took a risk um, in doing that. And what a difference that made, because you know, again, I thought it was gonna be a math teacher or a nurse or a secretary, but I, you know, I hadn't thought much beyond the, the boundaries of what I saw women doing. You know, I didn't see myself in anything else. And that really, that put me in chemistry, which opened the door for me to meet pharmacy students and eventually to enter into pharmacy. So someone I didn't know, someone I only spent a few moments with made such a huge impact on my life. And that really carried over for me when I became more of a mentor and was in more in academia and encountered students that how important those small snippets of time are you know, if it's just remembering a student's name in the hallway, you know, just saying their name when you see them, uh, you know, having a moment to sit down and 
totally focus on that person uh, at, who comes into your office if it's just for five or 10 minutes that, you know, I really realized how important those moments were and how you could impact someone's day and even their life in an unknown moment to you that you might not never even know because this person doesn't know that they impacted my life the way they did. So I learned a lot about that as a foundation for being an academician and, and really just the, the listening part and being present to learn about the people around you and whatever you do. And of course, in pharmacy, I mean, Cliff Lachelet is a giant and I was so privileged to be in his fiefdom, you know, but the real people that were around me that influenced me were people like Harold Godwin and Roger Anderson, Jim Visconti, you know, they were all young, right out of their master's or PhD programs at the time. Uh, this is their first jobs for many of them. I remember Steve Kaola was a huge influence. I mean, he was a resident at the medical center at the time. And so they were all young in their careers, which again, reflected on me that the difference you can make, you don't have to be a seasoned veteran to make a difference. Uh, it's, it's again, how you live your life moment to moment every day. And these people made huge impacts on, on the way I approached pharmacy and, and life in the years to come. But there were very few women role models. Sarah White was there as a resident. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, I got to, I, I was fascinated by her, but I would, I would say the, the true role model for me was Marva Champel, who was a pharmacist uh, that started about the same time as I did as an intern. She had very high standards. She was very patient focused. Marva always did the right thing, no matter what the price might be to her personally, because it was the right thing to do for the patient. She was the very first pharmacist to go up on the floors at OSU. She, we always said she was like the sacrificial lamb. She came down in six months, but she ran unit dose when she came down and she ran unit dose as a clinical pharmacist, ultimately went on to be the drug information specialist there and has mentored many, many, many residents and students over the years. And I just always admired how she was so nimble and kind of skated to the puck, as they would say. Uh, she was always ready for the next challenge. She always said yes. She always did it to the utmost perfection, but to the highest standards. And she always, she was the foundation on building what could clinically happen uh, on the floors um, above her. So she truly was the woman role model for me in pharmacy and became a, a, a great friend. And we raised children together. And she just recently moved away from Columbus to be closer to her daughter. And, and I, I really miss just not knowing that she's yeah. around the corner. So again, a pharmacist in the trenches that as Sarah White would say, you know, the big L and little L leaders. I think Marva really started as a little L leader and it certainly became a big L leader um, that was a, a marvelous role model for, for women early in uh, our careers. I just am eternally grateful for uh, having had her in, in my life. I learned so much about people and so much about mentoring and so much on how you create change. And so it was the skill set, I think, that I gained at OSU uh, in those early years in the hospital setting that was able to carry over into the community setting. And of course, I have to share that, uh, you know, Cliff was one of these people that was a visionary and uh, he would look at your skill sets and he would, you know, he could see where you were going to shine. And when he told you he thought something would be good for you, you know, you, you listen because you knew in a year, he would remember that he told you that. He'd come back and ask how you were doing on that. Uh, but one of the things he told me in the late 80s uh, was that clinical pharmacy needs to move into the community world. That's where it's going to be. Uh, and and you need to do it. And I listened and I looked around and I, you know, I quickly learned that 
relationships with patients were what really kept got my juices going and, and making a difference. And that was really the shift between the hospital setting into the community setting was that long-term relationship with patients. And I think that the skills that I was given for innovation, the skills I was given for excellence, the skills I was given on how you create change moved very easily into the community world. It was just with a, a little bit different with different focus. And so I would say that that was definitely the, the drive that moved me into the community world was that little nudge from Cliff and the recognition of what what we were doing and you know was just happening for a very short time in people's lives in the hospital and where we really need to make an impact was when they got out of the hospital and helped them make that work for themselves every day. Yeah, well, I just so appreciate your reflection on some of the icons that you were, you know, able to work with over the years and we had Sarah White on a few episodes ago and you know, and I talk about her big L and little L leadership quite a bit in, you know, my leadership efforts and I think it's just interesting that um, as residents too, you know, the people that you mentioned that launched these projects and some of the things that they did, and that it's the little things, you know, the kind of day-to-day that you pick up on. So, you know, preparation for pharmacy residency training is underway. You know, people are, I'm watching on social, people are getting ready to move to wherever they're going to be for PGY1 or, you know, getting ready to start PGY2 years. So you were so instrumental in the development of community pharmacy residency program, CPRP, And then a few years ago in 2019, you co-authored an article, and I kind of found this in some of my research for today's podcast about a marathon, not a sprint, growth and evolution of community-based pharmacy education and training. So let's kind of dive a little bit deeper. Let's talk a little bit about the history of the CPRPs and maybe some of the key milestones and then what you see coming next for community-based pharmacy practitioners. Well, community residencies, you know, when you reflect back on hospital residencies back in the late 50s, early 60s, and when I talk about the projects that the residents did, they laid the groundwork to push the profession forward. And and it certainly makes sense to think that that's when we started thinking about creating patient care services in the community world, that residency training could do the same thing in the community world. It could be that help build that framework. And, you know, I always say residents have the time to put in to do the creating. Pharmacists have given something can maintain it, but it's that time to create and to do the trial and error piece that pharmacists in the, in the trenches just don't have the time to be able to do that. And so bringing up community residences that could, number one, help bolster the practices they were in and learn at the same time how to create change was really important, but then also to train those. And this is really was Cliff's philosophy, which I always thought was amazing. You know, he expected you to leave and go someplace else. His goal was go go out in the world. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, that was really our goal. We want you, you know, I would even say that when we recruited, we want you to come here. We want you to learn and we want you to go someplace where this is not happening and make it happen because that's how it's going to happen. You know, somebody has to leave here. Somebody has to have seen it. Somebody has to create their own vision and and then go do it. It's hard to do if you can't see it. And so while building up, you know, what we were doing, I think we really relied on residents to help us do that. We also created people who had the opportunity to learn how to create change and go other places and do it. And that for sure is the fun part about training residents is that, you know, you give them what you got, you know, you show them what you can. And and then they go out and you go, oh my gosh, they just did something I could never even dream or imagine. And you just get to watch it happen and share them on from the sidelines. And you know, every once in a while, they'll come back for a little bit of advice and you really just listen and you send them on again. And and it's just, it's just such an amazing 
part of being part of uh, training all these young people who are um, could do far more than I can. And so it's uh, it's very humbling, but also very exciting at the same time. The big impact community residencies have has had is on on creating these patient care services o- over the years. And I think you know we started out with more that patient-focused dispensing where you were doing a lot of counseling and and trying to identify where there might be problems for the patients and moved into the health and wellness area, which helped identify what your population's areas of need were and then certainly then helped you develop your scope of services. Immunizations came along and certainly community residencies helped advance that. Then, you know, in uh, in the early 2000s, MTM was introduced. Uh, and so that that has now become a standard of practice in, in community settings. And now we're seeing more chronic care management, which I would say this all kind of flows into just optimizing medication therapy for patients. And so when I look back in 1999, when we started our residencies and, and what residents are doing, being trained in now, and even coming in thinking of that as the standard of practice it, yeah. is really exciting you know when the, i mean they can't imagine the pharmacists haven't always immunized and I, and i can it seems like yesterday when we were so excited about uh, having that opportunity and boy look where that came to benefit the united states was with pharmacists being able to immunize over the last 2 years and so it's beginning to see enough longevity that you can see the change and you can see the impact on healthcare um, in our communities through the advancement of those patient care services i think the advocacy has also grown through community residencies to help build the business model because truly that's the major barrier is there's not a business model for many of these services. And so getting pharmacists to understand advocacy and to be involved in it, I think has grown through the residency programs as well. I think one really interesting thing that I've observed, I mean, my battle for the very beginning was I wanted pharmacists in the community be recognized as clinical pharmacists, as clinical practitioners. And lo and behold, I started getting some pushback on that in like the last 10 years. They don't view themselves in that traditional role of a clinical pharmacist. I mean, they recognize they helped optimize patients' medications, but they they see their role, I think, in relationship with the patient as being so different. That term clinical pharmacist didn't truly resonate as well with them. And so that's what led to the definition of a community-based pharmacist practitioner out of this interaction with people about what they do and and how they feel that 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 term doesn't fully describe them. They see themselves as part of their community. They see themselves as advocates for the profession and for patients. They're meeting patients where the patient lives, works, plays, and pray, I always say. They're in for those long-term relationships. They're part of the, the team that incorporates their therapy into the activities of daily living. And so it's you know, in the hospital environment, it's controlled when they go home, you know, they make the choices, they're the leader of their team. And so how do you work with them to get them to keep them healthy and be able to enjoy life uh, the way they they're used to? And so it is it is a different role. And, and so that term evolved out of that process of identifying um, how those pharmacists in the trenches sometimes struggled with getting the label that fit them most. And and this term community-based pharmacist practitioners does really resonate with people that are working in the community world. So I, I have found that to be kind of a fascinating part of the journey. You know, as we stop and think, one of the major goals of our healthcare system is 
focused on keeping people out of the hospital, looking at having stronger transitions of care so they're not readmitted. And so as we move in, in that direction, being more focused on that, the role of the community practitioner um, is expanding and broadening. And, and really, most of the care is going to be coming back into the community. We're going to see less of the care, more of the emergency type things happening. You know, we're seeing shorter and shorter stays in the right. hospital. And so I, I only see community-based residencies and community-based pharmacy practitioners roles expanding in the future to meet the needs of the healthcare system. Well, and, and I think the past 15, 16, 18 months have really shown us that, that, you know, there's so many opportunities and so many ways that healthcare is evolving, pharmacy is evolving, the important role of the pharmacist in the community, you know, that what immunizations set the stage for years ago, and then, you know, where we're at today, and pharmacists, and then the expanded role for pharmacy technicians. I mean, there's just so much richness in it. And I also really love when you're talking about individuals being able to see something and then they can go out and take it somewhere else. Cause that was a big goal of mine with this podcast is sharing stories and examples. And it may not be something that you've done but you could see the possibility. And then we could widen the path for others to see that A, they're welcome and we want their ideas and their innovation. And if Mary Ellis did that, what could I do? So, you know, I th- and I think your framework with the community pharmacy residency programs just really set the stage for that. Well, you know, as we've been talking today, we I referenced the APHA 2021 meeting where you received the 2021 Remington Honor Medal, which is pharmacy's highest recognition and so well-deserved. And I really, I loved your remarks. And I mean, I physically, we wanted to be together, but since that wasn't possible this year, you know, that, that there were people from across the country and around the world that we were able to be a part of your live stream was really, really amazing. But I also know that with innovation, comes failure. You know, there's things that don't work out. So let's talk a little bit about that. Like, how did you kind of figure things out along the way? You know, maybe some, a project that didn't work. And then what did you learn? Well, I think I could probably come up with a long list of things yeah. that didn't work. I once said I was going to write an article at the end of my career of, uh, of the hundred things that didn't work. But I think it took a while for me to recognize that for most things that are entrepreneurial, when you create something new, when you're an early adopter, most of those things either don't remain the same as their original form or maybe or they don't last. That's hard. It's it's hard to, you had an idea and it didn't work or you put a lot of passion into something and it kind of fizzles. And I think what I learned was that from most things that don't work out, it, it's what you learn from innovation that takes you to success on the, on the next step uh, or takes somebody else to, to success on, on the next step. So failure is really part of the game. It's part yeah. of the learning. And that's hard. That's tough. And just learning to kind of recognize that's coming and that belief is so important. And, and I'll share a story that the, the first major project that I had as a, as a regular faculty member when I switched uh, into the um, to, onto that clinical track in the early 1990s, we got a $50,000 grant, which was really a lot of money in the early 1990s, uh, to implement services in community pharmacy. And we were so excited. Uh, we were over the moon. And we went to the, a District 4 meeting, that's an AACP, NABP meeting, uh, to present our project, to lay out what we were going to do. And uh, we, we just expected everybody to be so excited. So after the presentation, someone that I highly respected came up and told me, don't draw this out, fail quickly. 
and then tell us why it failed. Now I was just so shocked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's exactly what happened. It didn't work. It didn't take. And, and part of it was our approach. Part of it was that everybody believes the same way, sees the same way, believes the same way you do. Uh, we, we create a lot of great products that we did use for years, you know, in our frameworks in, in the future. But boy, the first one just really didn't work. But I would tell you that 10 years later, Clinical Partners was providing wonderful patient care services. University Health Connection was established. They were both up and running and the residency was going. The site that we worked with in that original partnership had become a residency site. It had a part-time faculty member in it at that point in time. And so things happened. They just didn't happen at that original piece because we learned so much from that first failure. We learned what not to do and we learned what people needed to get the buy-in and to move forward. And so when you fail, you've just got to step back and say, why didn't it work and make make the tweaks and make the adjustments and go on. And I, I'll have to say, I always admired, our first project was with Kroger and we were working uh, closely with Bill Sheridan, who was the district merchandiser who was over that area at that point in time. And for Bill to stick with us and come back again, I, I had great admiration for him as well. You have to try more than once and you have yep. to be willing to fail and you have to be able to really do a critical analysis of where did I go wrong? Where did the project go wrong? You know, just systems analysis, individual analysis, um, and then be willing to share that. And that, I think that was the important message I got was it's going to fail but tell us why it failed. And that was such an important message for me to hear. We had to share what went wrong. Um, that was really critical. I'd also say on a personal note, from a failure perspective, my Achilles heel has always been my English skills. I shared that my scores were so low. I mean, back in high school, I had an English teacher express concern to me that my English skills were become were going to become a huge barrier for me in my life. I don't know that I listened that closely to her, but I can you know now remember her her pulling me aside and sharing that with me. And here I am and ended up in academia where writing is such, right. such a critical piece. Um, and I think the turning point for me there was that when I took strength finders and, and I realized I needed to quit trying to take a weakness and, and spend tons of time making it just a tad better, I needed to find out what my strengths were and that was going to help me overcome my weaknesses. So rather than trying to move a weakness with, with a weak skill, I needed to take my strengths to help move that skill. And so my number one strength is strategic. And so I became very strategic about how I would approach writing up uh, projects. I, I found great partners who could write. You know, I had great content. Somebody could pick my brain and somebody had the patience to do that. We could make a great partnership. You know, I'm, a, I'm an innovator. I make a mess. I, a disruptive innovator was a is a term that resonates with me. So I always had a partner with somebody who could clean up after me. So I had somebody cleaned up after me and I had somebody who could take what was in my head and put it down on paper and, and find those partnerships. And so I had to use my strengths and not focus so much on my weaknesses. I learned that a lot from, from having to struggle my whole life with that barrier of not being able to spell. I'm a very creative speller and spell checker and I get into trouble a lot. We're not, we're not very good partners. Autocorrect on the, my phone is not a good thing either. But I, interestingly, now that I've retired, I, I'm reading more and I'm feeling this drive to write, which I find to be very intriguing. 
it was a struggle for me that I think pushed me to look at my whole approach to life differently, not to dwell on what I couldn't do, but to really look at what I can do well and do efficiently and effectively and, and to be willing to admit where I need help and partner to get those kind of things done. Well, there were so many rich life lessons in what you just shared. And, you know, the idea of focusing on your strengths and strength finders. A few episodes ago, I had ASHP past president Jan Carmichael on, and she's also a big proponent of strength finders and, you know, finding out what those are and focusing your attention on those. And also, you know, I think the examples of just sharing what didn't work, and we actually saw that with some stuff with during the pandemic, you know, with COVID of, you know, things that people tried that maybe worked or didn't work, but they were able to try it, pivot quickly, you know, because of the dynamic nature of everything going on. So, you know, I appreciate that you shared that. I think that made a big difference. Well, I know that even in your retirement, you continue to stay so busy. So, you know, what are you working on right now that kind of excites you about healthcare and pharmacy and public health? And what are some of the barriers for some of the things that you're working on? So certainly I've stayed close to community residencies because I have so much passion for those. So I serve as a, a contracted lead surveyor for ASHP to accredit community residencies. And I also work with APHA on community residency initiatives and the community-based pharmacy practitioner initiatives as well. So that piece that was so important to me, I, I continue to, to dabble in it for sure. But I've had an exciting opportunity that, uh, again, a door opened and, and you take advantage of it with the uh, NACDD, which is the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors that works with public health. And I've worked on two projects with them where they have states that partner with public health in their state to advance some type of uh, chronic disease state management and to see uh, how they can move forward in their partnerships. And I have discovered, my goodness, public health is like the connector of the world. You know, they, they're connected to everyone. So if you if you need uh, for pharmacy getting connected with public health then begins to get you connected with so many other resources and pathways to solve problems. So I've just been so amazed at what um, these two projects have been able to do based on this, each the public health understanding what pharmacy can do and pharmacy understanding what public health can do and really becoming advocates for each. And the last project, COVID hit in the middle of it, and you know you, you were feeling like it was just going to totally turn the program off. The faucet just wasn't going to be able to run for a while. But really, the pivot during COVID was just absolutely phenomenal. And because these roles were well established in these states already, the pharmacists being able to kind of pivot and work with COVID during the COVID uh, crisis, that partnership was just so strong already that it just opened the doors for many more opportunities. And so just been extremely impressed with what that partnership, that collaboration can bring to both sides. And, and then, of course, you know, we're thinking about the role of public health and COVID being a public health initiative. It was just, I, I can't say when I've ever been so proud uh, I think sometimes I would watch the news and I would see all these pharmacists across the country immunizing and testing, and I would actually get kind of emotional. Get, get yeah. Many of the pharmacists that I knew, I could see, I'd see see people that I knew on the on the screen, and I just felt like we were such an important, are such an important part of what's happening with testing and immunizing and treating. 
COVID and being called out as pharmacy doing that. It's just been remarkable. And I, I just, I'm really excited about where that partnership can take us. You know, I feel like the barriers are payment. And we've always said if the payment's there, that it would happen. I'm not totally sure that I am convinced that that is the only issue that's a barrier is the payment. Pharmacists being willing to change is also going to be a barrier once the payment's there. Doing things differently, I think, is hard. Pharmacists are very precision-driven, very risk-averse, and so it's hard to get them to move from point A to point B, especially if you have to leave something behind at point A. I think sometimes we are part of the barrier. And then I think if I extend that, it's really our delivery models. So I think our workflow, our delivery models, what we look like, what we look like to the public will also change. But I think that's going to have to be driven by having payment to allow that to change. Um, so I, I still think the barriers to all this change is, is payment. Um, but I think our delivery models are definitely going to have to adjust. And, you know, all change is difficult. So I think with the delivery models, the pharmacists doing things differently, it's going to be a challenge for us as well. I believe it's the exciting future is out there waiting. And I, I, I think the performance of pharmacy in public health over the last two years specifically has, has really put us in the forefront. And I think, I think opportunities are going to emerge from that that are going to be very positive for us as, as patient care providers. Yeah, I, t I totally agree with you. And I think the expectation that these kind of services can happen with your pharmacist in the community, because people have lived it, you know, they've experienced it. And so it's now it's like, okay, what's next? And how do we build on this? And so it's just, it's amazing. And I think we have to build now as yeah. well. Yes, that's critical. And I'm so glad we've reintroduced legislation uh, for for the whole whole bale of hay again. Yeah. But I think we have to we have to all get out and advocate now. Uh, we can't wait. It's fresh in people's mind. Uh, pharmacy is in the forefront of people's mind, and I, I I think we we can't let go. This is the time to be bold and to act now. And we need all hands on deck. I love that. This is the time to be bold and to act now. Well, you know, our time together is drawing to a close and you and I could keep chatting. I know that for sure. But at the close of each of these conversations, I do ask my guests, you know, while I have you, is there one prescription or life lesson you'd like to share with others or comment on in the spirit of Melissa Rex scripts? So I've really thought a lot about this. I have, I have a pretty typical answer that I give to this question. But one thing really surfaced for me that was a little different, and it's actually surfaced this morning um, as I was reflecting. And I think the advice I gave myself eventually uh, that I think really opened doors for me would be the advice that I, I would give to other people. And that is when I made the decision to bring who I am to pharmacy, was when I was able to effectively create change. It was when I stopped trying to be what I thought I needed to be or what I had to be or try to fit a mold, even in academia, which is tough. When I decided to bring who I was, what gifts I had, what strengths I had, that was when I felt a change. So I think it's so, so important to be authentic and to be self-aware and, and know who you are and believe in who you are. You know, you were created with great gifts and th that, that's what you want to lead from. And, and for me, that was taking risks. And I think it's very natural for pharmacists to not take risks. We, we help people make the best use of their medications. And we certainly don't want to take any risk in what it is we do. 
But I think the risk is in finding new and better ways to help people make the best use of their medications. So I would encourage people not to be afraid to be who they are, to say yes to new opportunities to fit who you are, to say yes to the things that you don't always have answers for. Take that road less traveled or even get off the road and create a new path. If you really feel down in your gut, if you're really feeling that nudge, that call, whatever you it is, you want to name it, take the risk and say yes to it. You know, you want to figure out what table you need to sit at. You want to get done what you need to get done. And then you need to get to that table and lean in. I love the book, Lean In. You want to help set that table so you can better help patients and make the best use of their medications. And so I think if we're always putting in front of us what I can do to help patients better use their medications, to get the best use of their medications, to optimize their therapy, if I can see the beginning of a path or a better way to get this done, then that's what needs to drive me and I need to take the risk to do that. And I would say personally, the same thing, say yes to life. We all work hard. We all wanna make a difference. I, I don't know that I've met a pharmacist that doesn't wanna make a difference and they work hard to do that for other people. I just believe we need to take time to celebrate the big things and the little things. You know, there's not that many big things that come along to celebrate. So we gotta find little things along the way just to stop and celebrate and, and just take time to be, not to always be doing. Uh, so I would say, find your authentic self, take the risks to be that person, bring that to pharmacy to help our patients make better use of their medications. And in the meantime, say yes to life and go out and celebrate the big and the little things every day. Well, Mary Alice, I'm celebrating. I'm celebrating your professional accomplishments. I'm celebrating the small moments that you and I you know, reconnected and just the richness of our conversation today. You've given just me so much joy in, you know, spending time with you and also thinking about how I can carry this forward. So this has been just a real, real treat. You know, I, I want to say thank you for sharing these insights with me. And this is the Melissa Arc Scripts podcast. And to everyone listening, please subscribe to our show or leave a rating. I want to say a special thank you to my producer, Kate Cruz with Executive Podcast Solutions, who helps us make the magic happen. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Melissa. It's been a real privilege to be here. And thank you for continuing this mission to help women recognize they can be leaders.